of any relationship is the concealing, the withholding of certain parts of who you are from the person you're seeking to be in relationship with. Maybe you've already experienced this in your own life. Uh, And while there can be any number of reasons of why we do this, and I believe that that's something that's common to all of us, I think to one degree or another we all do this, we hold back certain parts of us. One of the reasons uh, in the end that we do that, I think in the end beyond all of our reasoning and rationalizing, boils down to the belief that if we were truly known like all of us, we wouldn't be loved, we'd be rejected. And so we think, I got to hold these things back, I can't share this part of me. As I have mentioned a number of times uh, over the course of the years, I got to watch this a front row seat. I got to watch this play out in real time in my own marriage. Uh, as I withheld many times the fullness of who I was, uh, what, what are the things that I, I, I felt, what I needed from my wife, I withheld these things all because I believed that there were parts of me that Sarah would not or could not accept. And so there were just things that I couldn't bring to her. I just, these got to just stay here behind, locked behind these doors. And it was only uh, uh, then over the time that the result was that our relationship just continued to do this, continued to separate further and further because I didn't really know who this person was to the point where our, our relationship was so bad it nearly fell apart completely. And it was only when I was finally willing to risk sharing all of who I was that I came to the surprising realization that my wife actually wanted to know all of me. She wanted to know all of me. Now, she didn't like every part that she saw. I'm not going to give you a false impression of myself. She didn't like all the parts that she saw, but the counterintuitive reality was that our relationship was actually deepened. It was strengthened as I brought those hidden things to her, and rather than uh, weakening it as I thought it was going to do, it actually, as I said, strengthened the relationship. What I came to understand in the end was this. While many are, are just, just kind of give themselves to say, you know what, I'm just going to surrender to the idea that maybe true intimacy isn't really possible. Maybe it's just, it always has to be this way. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say to you this morning that I learned and I believe this to be true. There can be true intimacy. There can be true relationship possible. It's possible for you in any one of the relationships you're in this morning, but it requires the full disclosure, <laughs> requires the opening warts and all of, of who you are to the other person, or it's always going to remain to some degree incomplete. And I tell you all that simply because when it comes to our relationship with God, even though nothing is truly hidden from his sight, he, he has a knowledge of us that exceeds even our own self-knowledge, our experience of that fullness of relationship with God can also remain limited and incomplete to a certain degree um, if we believe that there are certain parts that are unpresentable to Him, that we can't bring to Him. And so, based on that, we're beginning this new series today, teaching series through the book of Psalms entitled, Every Last Key. And among many other things, one of the great benefits to us of spending some dedicated time together here in this collection of praises that really encompasses the entirety of life's experience. You're going to see everything as we dig into this book. It's so varied in its scope. One of the things that we're going to see that the Psalms do so well is that they teach us by example... The transforming reality that the God who formed us, the God who made, made us, is also interested in us. He, he cares about us. He wants to speak life into every part of us, all of it, 
the good, the bad, the ugly. He, he wants us to bring him our joy as well as our anger. He wants us to, to bring him our trust as well as our doubts. He wants us to bring our, our thanksgiving and our feelings of envy, all of it. That, that if you were to picture your life like a house, God wants you to, to give him the key to every last room of the house, all of it. He wants to know all of it. And just as I discovered in my marriage, my prayer is that every single one of us in this place is going to discover as well the transforming reality that when you do that, when you bring all of your experience to God, and not just the parts you think are presentable, the experience of your relationship with Him will also be deepened and strengthened rather than further weakened as maybe you imagined. So if you're ready for this, if you're ready to dig into to hope, I pray, experience a depth of relationship with God that maybe you didn't even know was possible, or just to discover an even deeper walk with God than you already have, let's dig into this. Let's get going together and begin to offer God every last key. We're going to do that starting off where the book of Psalms starts off in Psalm chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to the book of Psalms, if you don't know the Bible well, pretty much right in the middle of the Bible is going to be Psalms. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 383. And when you found Psalm 1, if you would stand together with me, and I'm going to read our passage together. Psalm 1, we read this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over. And in the Hebrew there, the literal word is knows. It's having this intimate knowledge of. The Lord knows. He watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. That's God's word. Would you be seated? Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time and His Word. Spirit of God, we come to you now asking you to illumine our minds, open up our ears and our hearts to receive what it is that you want to speak to us today through this Word. God, we, we, some of us are apprehensive. We don't know if we want to open up every last room of our house to you, and yet we trust God. We want to take a risk today and do that and open this up to open ourselves up so that we can experience a deeper fullness of relationship with you, maybe for the first time. Would you guide us then in this time in your word? We believe this is a living word that speaks to us and accomplishes the things you want it to accomplish in each one of us. I believe that each person here today, you drew us here because you wanted to speak this word to us to accomplish something. So I ask, Spirit of God, would you accomplish what you wanted to accomplish in each one of us? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. I think I may have been a part of the very last generation of kids who received a free 
circus ticket along with their report card at the end of the year. Does anyone else remember this? Anybody? Do you, do, do, one. Okay. Maybe this was a BC thing. I don't know. And the end of the year, your last report card, you got a free circus ticket stuffed in the envelope with your report card. And this was like old school circus, like lions and, and, and animals and clowns and trapeze, like that kind of, not, not Cirque du Soleil. That's totally different. I mean, that's amazing, but not the same thing. This is old school circus. You got a free ticket with your report card. I think I was the last generation to get this. Now I don't know what they give kids. I don't know, a Spotify gift card, something. This is what we got. And, and for me, this was an amazing, really cool experience. I loved it. Family, of course, they had to buy their own tickets. But we all gathered together. We went down to the local hockey arena, which is where they would hold these things. It was the only space big enough to do it. The floor was now covered with uh, sawdust and three big rings right in the center where the ice used to be. The, the air is filled with the smells of popcorn and candy canes. Or, sorry, not candy canes, cotton candy. Uh, you got like elephant poop, all kinds of conflicting smells in the air. It was beautiful. It was amazing. This incredible show, the circus in town. And if you've ever been to a circus before, any, particularly one like this, you might remember that particularly near the end of the show, sometimes there would be stuff going on in each of the three rings at the same time. All different things simultaneously happening, creating in me at this time a strong, strong feeling of FOMO before FOMO was even a thing. Fear of missing out if you haven't learned to speak millennial. Which thing should I watch? Everything looks amazing. How do I know which ring to focus on? Brought a lot of stress into my life. I, I wanted to see it all. Well, I don't think I need to probably convince anybody in here today that living in this late modern technological age of internet, globalization, uh, social media connectivity that is unparalleled at any other time in history... But that difficulty I experienced trying to choose between three rings, what to watch, well, that's been multiplied by about a billion today, hasn't it? <laughs> we're, 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 every ring, every single one of the rings is all promoting themselves as the greatest show on earth. And rather than an experience that has a defined start and end time, this experience is now running continuously 24-7 with new rings being added to the show by the minute. What do we... What do we do in an experience like this of just like oversaturation of stuff all like in front of us? What do we look at? What do we focus on? How do you live a life of fulfillment and fruitfulness in an age like this? How do you live a life after God's own heart in an age of distraction? Great question. Well, as we begin this teaching series today through Psalms, again, entitled, Every last key. What we're going to see is the Bible's answer to that question in Psalm chapter 1 is this. You, you do that by bringing God, first of all, your focus. Bringing God your focus. Making Him the primary thing you focus your life on. We're going to look at all kinds of different things through the course of this series that God wants us to bring to Him. Some of them will seem self-evident to you. Others will be like, really? He wants me to bring in that? Yes. But here today, what we're going to focus on is how God wants us to bring Him our focus. We'll spend the rest of our time talking about like what, what, that, what that means, what that could look like in your life and mine. But simply put, what Psalm 1 is going to show us today is that while there may be billions of circus rings all vying for our attention and focus, the decision between fruitfulness and withering, 
between uh, blessedness and perishing is really only between two rings. What Psalm 1 is going to refer to as ways. And the two ways are simply this. The rooted way of the blessed and the momentary way of the perishing. Those are the two rings, the two ways we need to decide between. Lots of different rings, really only down to two choices. The rooted way of the blessed, the momentary way of the perishing. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that passage, Psalm 1? Just follow along with me now as we look at what, it, what, what it's like to live a focused life in an age of distraction. Okay, let's look first of all at the rooted way of the blessed. The rooted way of the blessed. As we get deeper into this series, you're going to see, uh, probably notice over time, that the majority of psalms that we come across in the book of Psalms are actually prayers. Uh, prayers uh, of praise, prayers of lament, prayers asking for justice, prayers asking for mercy, all these different things and so on. And while the opening psalm of the book of Psalms certainly praises God, for the blessing he brings to those who fix their focus and attention on him. Uh, what you may have already noticed as we read through it is that the first psalm in the book of Psalms is not actually a prayer at all. It's much more like a proverb, like a proverb in that it is instructing the one who seeks God's blessing as to what they should do, as opposed to praising God for blessing that he's already given, which is, I'm, telling, uh, I'm saying, is, a, is an editorial choice. It is a placement that almost every commentator I read saw as intentional. In his commentary on Psalm 1, for instance, Derek Kidner writes this, It seems likely that this psalm was specially composed as an introduction to the whole Psalter. Psalter is simply the word used to describe all of the psalms together. Certainly it stands here as a faithful doorkeeper, confronting those who would be in the congregation of the righteous with the basic choice that alone gives reality to worship, with the divine truth that must inform it and with the ultimate judgment that looms up beyond it. So it would seem that the compiler of the book of Psalms made an intentional choice to begin the whole book with a proverb-esque kind of call to fix our attention and focus firstly on God and, and, and His way if we hope to find any blessing in the 149 other Psalms that follow. That's what the beginning call of Psalm 1 is. It's ultimately this call to make that basic choice that Kidner just spoke of between these two ways, a way that leads to blessing and a way that leads to perishing. Now, way, that word that keeps being used, is as Hebrew, Hebrew scholar Robert Alter describes it, it simply means a traditional metaphor for pursuing a set of moral choices. That's what Psalm 1 means when it talks about way. Pursuing a set of moral choices. This is why in verse 6, for instance, look there with me quickly. Uh, the author can, of Psalm 1 can speak of the Lord as watching over, or having this intimate knowledge of the way, the, the, the moral pattern of life of the righteous. And conversely, how the way of the wicked, the, these moral choices opposed to God's law, will lead eventually to perishing. So it's these, that, that's what's meant when it keeps talking about these different ways. But with that understanding now of way, and we can understand what Psalm 1 means, I think we can now get a clearer sense of what the psalm as a whole means when we go back to verses 1 through 3 now and talk about what this description of the rooted path of the blessed looks like. So turn back with me there to verse 1. Here again we read, Blessed is the man 
who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now, that first verse in particular, it sounds like it doesn't really fit, right? Like maybe it should be part of the second description of the momentary way of the perishing. But I think a closer look reveals the author is not... It's simply he's just describing negatively what the man who is blessed does not do. That's all that verse 1 is doing. He's describing negatively what the man who is blessed does not do. Theologians refer to this as apophatic theology. That's a big $50 word you can use to impress your friends at parties. It simply means I'm describing what something is by telling you what it isn't. That's what verse 1 is simply doing here. So this blessed one does not walk in the counsel of the wicked does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of mockers. And then immediately, following this description of what the blessed man does not do, verse 2 goes on to describe positively what the blessed man of, by God does do. Namely, he delights himself in the law of the Lord and meditates on God's law day and night. That word law in both cases is the Hebrew word Torah. Torah, which simply means God's direction. God's instruction. Maybe you've heard that word before. Uh, God's law, it could refer to a specific command. It could refer to a whole collection of writings. Maybe you know the first five chapters of the Hebrew Bible are referred to as the Torah. But here, what it's referring to in Psalm 1 is all of the direction, all of the instruction of God throughout His entire word. It's, It's a collective term to mean all of God's instruction and directions for us. So do this. Delight yourself in God's law and deeply ponder it. Process it over and over throughout the day, says the author of Psalm 1. And don't do this. Don't don't get caught up in the world's idea of what wisdom looks like, which is very often contrary to God's law, or, 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 or become one who scoffs at, who ridicules the truths of God. And the result will be this. Look at verse 3. We will be, it says, like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, which is an incredible picture of fulfillment, fruitfulness, isn't it? This amazing image of a tree in a dry and desert place, but that can still continue to thrive, can still continue to flourish and produce fruit in its season. Why? Well, because it's been planted, literal Hebrew is transplanted, in a place where it has a constant supply of life-giving water. It can constantly drink, it can constantly feed, even in a place where there's no water available elsewhere. That imagery of a constant supply of water, streams in a desert place, if you didn't know, is an image that the Bible uses throughout, and it's almost always a reference to the presence of the Holy Spirit inside someone, who, who is strengthening, empowering them to do what on their own they could never hope to do. It's what Jesus was referring to, for instance, in John 4 with the woman at the well, talking about water that he would give, that whoever drank it would never be thirsty again. That's what this image is referring to. And then fruitfulness in season, of course, that's the blessed result of drinking from this constant supply of water. Because think about it, uh, a tree doesn't just take in water through its roots and then deposit it somewhere else. That's a sprinkler, that's not a tree. The, the, the tree takes in the water, it processes it, however that happens, and then it becomes the thing that allows the tree to, to grow. It can maintain its healthy leaves and it can produce fruit over time. And so it is in the blessed 
life of the one who God has transplanted into his kingdom and who has placed his spirit inside. That's, that's what happens to us as we drink from the water that the spirit is welling up in us. We grow, we continue to remain healthy, continue to produce spiritual fruit as we do this. When you think about what giving God your focus could look like in your own life today, in order to receive His blessing, I think according to this passage, it's going to look something like what we see in this description in verse 2, which lists two key distinctives of someone who is walking in this rooted way of the blessed. Look again with me at verse 2. First of all, the first distinctive we have of this person this, who's walking in the rooted way of the blessed is that they delight themselves in the law of the Lord. That's the first thing it's going to look like. They delight themselves in the law of the Lord. Now, this has, first of all, to do with uh, the attitude of our heart. It's the attitude of your heart, namely that we don't just do what God commands, but we love what He commands. It's a totally different mindset, not just obedience for obedience sake, but loving what God commands. Secondly, it also means that you, when, when you're in need of comfort, of in need of peace, of joy, of acceptance, of intimacy in your life, the first place you go to is not to drugs or alcohol or starting another relationship or a Netflix binge. You, you, you go instead first to God with the expectation that every one of those needs can be truly met in Him. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't also use uh, other people, a spouse, a friend, to support that work, to support the work and the feeding that he's done through his word. But one of the first tasks involved in giving God our focus is to learning over time to take your focus off all the things that you used to just go to instinctively, habitually, like, oh, I'm, I'm having this need, I go there. I'm having this struggle, I go to this. And instead, switching that around so the focus now becomes first on the God who can truly speak new life into, who can truly bring change into those places of need. And then the more you do that over time, the deeper and more stable your root structure in Him becomes. Second distinctive of someone who is walking this rooted path of the blessed, it says next is they meditate on God's Word day and night. They meditate on God's Word day and night. Now try to just take every picture in your mind that may have immediately come of like a yoga class or like some Shaolin monk, Kung Fu Panda, like sitting there meditating. And the, because the point of what Psalm 1 is trying to give to us with that word meditation is not about emptying our minds at all, but about filling them up. Filling them up with the truth of God from His words so that we can know how to engage with all the different challenges that we all come across with our lives every day. We're filling ourselves up. We're filling up our mind with that truth so we know how to respond. And far beyond simply just checking the box of Bible reading, I think those of us who do regularly be, read the Bible, sometimes we can get trapped in that of like, okay, Bible reading, check, done, now I can get on to work or whatever it is I'm doing. Instead, what this is about meditating on God's Word. It means taking it in, yes, reading it, but then stopping, taking the time to think deeply about what I just read. Maybe you're just taking a word. Maybe it's a sentence. Maybe it's a thought. And really processing it through in your mind, thinking about what are the implications? If that's true, what does that mean I should do? Uh, wrestling through the questions that it forces you to ask. Uh, engaging with and submitting to the conforming influence that it brings in your life. All of these things. It's looking deeply and purposefully into the mirror of God's Word, as James says in his epistle. And then acting on what is revealed in the investigation. That's, that's what regularly, like loving, delighting yourself in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. It's not 
walking around all day with your Bible. It's making it like just the pattern of your life that God's word so saturates your life that you're just think, you're thinking about it. You're thinking through the implications of it. You meditate on it. You mull it over. That's what this looks like, to give God your focus. And it, will, it is the rooted way of the blessed. The problem for many of us, however, to do this is that we hear those things and we're like, oh, I can't do that. You know how busy my life is? I can't, I don't have, I don't have time to sit for hours studying the Bible. Like, I, I can't, like, it's just we find it monumentally hard to do, so we just don't do it at all. And a lot of times where that can come from is because over time what we can tend to do is so compartmentalize our faith that studying God's Word, spending intentional time in the Bible becomes something that only happens here. Sunday morning, that's the place where you open God's Word and study it, right? And then we come and we open His Word and we study it, we learn about it, we, we meditate on it, and then we close the Bible, and then it goes uh, in our trunk, on our shelf, until next Sunday, and then we come back and open it up again, and then wonder why our spiritual life feels so dry, wonder why our spiritual growth feels so slow, or God, our relationship with Him feels so far away. We haven't, been, we haven't been drinking. Think about what, it, what would it look like if you drank water once a week. I don't even think we could live. <laughs> we need this every day. It is the, the nourishment that continues to keep us healthy and growing. Now, I know this is not the pattern of everyone in here. Uh, some of you, I know, have like incredible, passionate love of God's Word. You spend time in it daily, and, and that's, there's evidence of it. You can see your love for God and His Word and just the way you talk. It's, it's awesome, but for others, I think you just, it's really just that you need to abandon, like, today. Abandon today the idea that, like, spending a time daily in God's Word, pondering and thinking deeply about what it means, that that's something that pastors do. Theologians, yeah, they're the guys that think of the Bible and study it every day. It's not. This is not just something pastors do. Yeah, I do it, but it's something that all of us are to do. When, when the people of Israel are crossing into the promised land, God's instruction to the whole nation was this, Joshua 1.8. It says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, and then you will, have, uh, then you will be prosperous and successful. Notice he didn't say, Joshua, I want you to do this as the people head into the land. I want all the leaders to do it. No, he said, You, people of Israel. Do this. If he was from the southern state, all y'all, all y'all do this. Because it's something that everyone needs to do, not, not just the leaders. Everyone who's a part of God's family needs to be doing this. Why? Because it's the life-giving drink that every one of our faiths needs in order to remain spiritually healthy, in order to continue to produce fruit in our lives. We can't do it without this. And it's not an exaggeration at all to say that meditating on God's Word is as optional a drinking to your spiritual health as drinking water every day is to your physical health. One-to-one parallel, absolutely. Okay, so that's the rooted way of the blessed. Psalm 1 spends the most time talking about that way, and so that's why we spent so much time there. We will not spend as much time on the second way. But Psalm 1 does speak of this other way as well. And so that's what we'll look at lastly here as we talk about the momentary way of the perishing. The momentary way of the perishing. And this second way, which again, verse 6 remind us, is a way that leads to perishing. It truly is momentary. 
It's a momentary way. As far as we see there in verse 4, look with me there now. In stark contrast to the well-watered, deeply rooted stability of those who walk according to the way of the righteous, verse 4 says this, Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff, if you didn't know, is the, the dry husks and straw around a kernel of wheat that is separated from the wheat when it's threshed, and it's the part that as they toss it into the air with the big forks, it's blown away, and then the wheat remains on the ground for them to gather up and use. So you see, he's saying that those who walk according to this second way, they, they have nothing to cling to. They have nothing to, to nourish them. They have nothing to, that's, that's rooting them down to anything when the winds and storms of life come. And so, in the end, they are here one moment, and gone the next. Psalmist goes on in verse 5. Therefore, continuing to talk about this second way, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. That uh, judgment spoken of at the beginning of verse 5 is undoubtedly the last judgment at the end of time. Uh, that's, it's spoken of all through the Bible, specifically in places like 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The point the psalmist is making here is that those who walk in this way of the wicked, that is, those who are opposed to God, those who walk in opposition to his word, won't have a leg to stand on, to borrow a phrase, at this final judgment. And then the assembly of the righteous in the second half of verse 5. Uh, it, it's not referring necessarily to a gathering like this of, of God's people coming together, but again, referring to that last day of, of Christ's return when Jesus comes again and gathers the wheat into his barn. Remember John the Baptist speaking about this as he preached down by the river Jordan in preparation for Jesus' first coming. Which, man, taken all together, when you look at this whole picture of verses 4 and 5, it's a powerfully contrasting picture to the first, isn't it? One is green and lush and producing fruit. One is dry and lifeless and blown away by the slightest wind. Demonstrating the truly momentary, truly temporary nature of this second way, however appealing, however steady it may appear to be in the present, as well as the terrible end in store for those who choose to persistently walk in it. Some of you will remember a story I shared not long ago about a video on YouTube where a now badly disabled young woman named JC, not Jay-Z, but JC, her story about where she shares, does these interviews with young people who don't see a problem with texting and driving at the same time. And she shares this story from her own life, how coming home from her college graduation, someone on their phone caused an accident for them, taking the lives of both her parents causing her to live life in a hospital for months where she just learned how to walk and eat again and leaving her permanently, partially disabled for life. When you think about that horrible accident, ask the question, what was the problem that led to such devastation? What was the problem? It wasn't that the person who caused that accident had a driving problem, like they didn't know how to drive properly, so they caused this accident. No, the issue was they had a focus problem. They had a focus problem. They were focusing on the wrong thing. They saw focusing on this as more important than focusing on this. And in the end, the, the result was perishing. 
And just the same as in driving, the same is true in life. When we focus on the right things first, other things tend to kind of align themselves well behind it. Focus on the wrong thing, and it brings about devastation and perishing. And no, listen, Psalm 1 is, is not trying to just scare people into taking the first way. Any more than JC was trying to scare kids into not texting and driving. This isn't the psalmist being like, so you better start reading the Bible more or God's going to get you. That's not what this is. No, this is, this is a loving, gracious plea to remind you that although there's lots of things, lots of things in life that are screaming for your attention and focus, there are real eternal consequences for focusing on the wrong thing. And God's loving plea and desire for everyone here is that we would turn from that way and follow his way instead because his desire is that we would have life, that we would be blessed in him. So that's what this is. It's a call to abandon that other way and follow this way because of the blessed result of it. If you want to understand the true bleakness of what this second way eventually leads to, all you need to do is actually just flip the psalm on its head and read it negatively to understand just how bleak a picture it's truly trying to paint. Listen, to say it this way, imagine the Psalm, Psalm 1 reading this way. Cursed is the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Cursed is the one who stands in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of mockers, whose delight is not in the law of the Lord, and who has no interest in, in meditating on it for even a moment. The one who does this, he will be like a tree withering and fruitless. In the desert because it has no water source. And in the end, whatever they seek to accomplish will fail. As the people of Israel were about to enter into the promised land and Moses is handing over leadership to Joshua, he gathers all the people together as one. And after reminding them of who this God is that has redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to this land that is God's promise to them that's now going to be theirs to own, he says these words to them in Deuteronomy 30. He says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that your ch you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the end, this is ultimately what the call of Psalm 1 is for us. Setting before us these two ways, the way of life, and the way to death, and in the call of God to every single one of us here this morning remains the exact same. Choose life. Please choose life. Do you want to know a fulfilling, fruitful life that is blessed by God and that also is strengthened every moment by the power of His Spirit dwelling within you? Do you want to know a life that, that is known and watched over by God and that can give you full assurance of your ability to stand at that final judgment? book of Malachi, the prophet asks a terrifying question. He says, who can, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launder's soap. The answer to that question from Psalm 1 is, the person who fixes the focus and attention of their heart firstly on God, 
That's who can stand. That's the assurance that we can have here by walking in this way of the righteous. The one who, in an age of distraction, places God at the very center ring of their lives. And who does that by delighting in his word and prioritizing time spent there. Hear me, not because we're on some kind of merit-based system with God where we can earn his blessing by spending enough time reading the Bible. No, no. Because in meditating on God's word, you discover on every page the one that his word points to, Jesus Christ. You may have met people through the course of your life that love the Bible, but don't love the God of the Bible. We need to know the God that this Bible, this word is pointing us to again and again. Remember a few weeks back in our Easter message, Luke 24, Jesus says, all of this is about me. It's all pointing to me, every last page, every last word, every story, it's all pointing to me, Jesus Christ. The only one, by the way, who ever walked the way of this blessed man from Psalm 1 perfectly and who, by doing so, earned the blessing of God on our behalf. He is the Savior's God. He is the Savior that God's Word reveals to us, and He's the source of all God's blessing, His comfort, His forgiveness, His redemption through His life, death, and resurrection when you make Him the primary focus of your life. That's the point of spending time in this Word, that we would focus on Him. So in the end, that's the very short, simple answer to the question. This is how you live a focused life in an age of distraction. By focusing on the right thing. Amen. We're going to come to a time now where we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Those of you who are helping me serve, if you would come forward at this time.